0: From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and as the dust settles, we'll be here in my office in the Cambridge Politics Department for a couple more conversations about this most remarkable of elections. This week, we're talking media, old and new. I'm joined by Richard Danbury, who was one of the producers of Jeremy Paxman's coruscating interviews with Cameron and Miliband early on in this campaign. In 2010, Richard helped to produce the first ever prime ministerial debates And he has more than a decade of experience arranging the inquisitions of politicians at election time. We talk about impartiality, gotcha politics and premature announcements of the death of old media. Richard tells me what the losing parties should be looking for as they choose their new leaders.
1: And What they don't get, it's like buying a birthday present. You don't buy a birthday, you don't buy the thing you want, you buy the thing which other people want. And that's what activists should do when they're electing uh, people to run their, their parties.
0: And the double game that Rupert Murdoch has been playing.
1: the old thing about journalism is uh, you've got to be aware of what you want the audience to think and also you've got to be aware of what the audience wants you to say. It's a reciprocal thing and I think with Murdoch those combined motivations are patent in his support for Sturgeon in Scotland and for Cameron in England.
0: Stay with us to hear more. First our regular panel. Helen Thompson, an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory. Though we've talked a lot on this podcast about England, Scotland, and the possible breakup of the UK, we haven't said much about what devolution within England might look like. This week, George Osborne announced plans to create a series of directly elected mayors across the north of England, starting with Greater Manchester, as part of his ambition to create what he calls a northern powerhouse. This is carrot and stick politics, The North won't get the direct investment it's been promised unless it adopts Osborne's proposed reforms. Finbar, is it
2: going to work? The question really is, who do you mean will it work for? Will it work for Osborne or will it work for the people living in the regions? And will it work for the country as a whole? In terms of economic development, we've seen in the past lots of different efforts to devolve power and especially devolve investment down to the regions. We had the region development agencies in the past. They never seem to take off. They seem to unfortunately replicate one another. They seem to focus in on the same targets. And it doesn't have the desired effect of really bringing regions on and bringing regions to the same level as is wished for that the Southeast is currently at.
0: Will it work politically is the other question. And we talked a bit last week, and maybe I overstated the extent to which The Labour Party needs to be very, very afraid of what George Osborne is planning to get them hooked on before 2020 this might be part of it. Tristram Hunt, we're going to come on to the Labour leadership later on in this podcast. Tristram Hunt in a speech he's giving today is apparently going to announce that Labour needs to move from the 35% strategy to the 100% strategy, that is try and win votes everywhere. Helen, isn't this part of the Osborne 100% strategy? He is basically saying we've got the South, now we need to take the North. That doesn't sound too Game of Thrones.
3: It does sound very Game of Thrones-ish, but Certainly, I think that there is a good deal of truth in what you say in terms of what Osborne's strategy uh, is here. I think, though, what's striking about it is how utterly urban a vision it is. It's a vision of a basically a mega northern city composed of the cities that run from Liverpool in the west to Hull uh, in the east. That's going to leave still a lot of people who don't live in either in the Southeast East in London or in the cities in the north out of the vision, if we can call it that, that Osborne is proposing. There's still a, a lot of space for somebody or a party that wants to address the concerns of those people who are going to get left behind in the move towards greater uh, urbanisation in political and economic sense of life in the north.
0: And one of the problems with all of these arguments about English devolution is that we talk about devolving power down from Westminster, but there aren't any institutions to devolve it onto. I mean, there's local government, but the intermediary institutions don't exist. With Scotland, with Wales, with Northern Ireland, we've created the institutions. We haven't in the case of England. So in this case, the idea is to create, as Helen says, these kind of mega urban metropolitan areas, Greater Manchester, Sheffield and everything that surrounds it and so on. Chris, there seems to me to be a problem here, which is these are such artificial creations. And yet the idea is that these entities are going to be the ones that make genuine political decisions for the people who live in them. People don't have any identification with them.
4: I think that's right. And one of the things uh, that... I'm always drawn back to is that moment during the Blair years when they held a referendum on devolving power to the northeast. The northeast was widely believed to be the region that would be most sympathetic to devolution because of an anxiety that the Scots would do better at their expense now that they had their Scottish parliament. And so New Labour held the the referendum in the northeast. John Prescott was keen to for this regional devolution to go ahead, um, and in the northeast widely thought to be the most pro-devolution area, the referendum failed badly. There's no popular move for devolution to these kinds of regional levels. And it becomes uh, this ways of the politicians doing, implementing their top-down schemes to try to pursue their own strategies, sort out their own problems – it looks obvious to me that the Labour Party's interest in regional devolution is driven by their anxieties over the fraying union with Scotland, uh, rather than because of any uh, any pull that's coming from the people in these regions themselves. And do you think directly elected mayors is going to address this? So there's a sort of, I think there's a kind of
0: wishful thought about what happens in North America, where City mayors do have real power. The mayor of Chicago, that's a seriously powerful role. But then it is the mayor of Chicago. It's the mayor of a real city and it's a long standing institutional arrangement. The idea is, say, to create a mayor of Greater Manchester, which will draw in all sorts of smaller towns around Manchester under this aegis. Is it, is it going to work? Is that going to kind of galvanize local politics because these will be real elections for positions that people can understand, exercise real power?
4: Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. And we've got the precedent of London that uh, you can look at. Uh, Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson swapping the mayoral position. Has that transformed things for London? I think on balance, probably the mayor is a decent institution, all things considered. But the powers the mayor has are extremely limited. And the idea that these will be some kind of transformative game changer seems to me to be misplaced. The other problem with English devolution is
0: within an argument about a new federalism for the UK, because there also don't exist institutions that England itself as a separate entity could be represented by. There could be an English Parliament created, there aren't really any realistic plans for that. But there are semi realistic plans at the moment for English votes for English laws in the House of Commons in Westminster. So to take the Westminster Parliament and give it this kind of double role, it is both the Parliament of the Union. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, or whatever it is, it's the Parliament of England. Helen, is that remotely feasible?
3: I think that that's what we're going to end up something like that in in practice, because actually facing up to what really dealing with the union problem as it now exists means would be either accepting the independence of Scotland or it would mean creating an English parliament that was separate. And going back to George Osborne's argument about the northern power, how she might say an English parliament that wasn't in London was in the the north might have some benefits uh, in that sense. But I think one of the reasons why we're not going to see that outcome is is because the Conservative Party now, clearly the dominant party in English Politics as in net outcome in British politics um, too is is not going to want a situation where you're going to have various matters that are reserved for the union, not least foreign policy, that is going to be dependent effectively on the consent of an English Parliament to to tax. I mean that's got sort of historical resonances going back to the Civil War. That
0: well, last time Chris took us back to the 1670s and how long it's been since the Lib Dems didn't have a representative from the Southwest. Now you're taking us back to the Civil War. You're going to have to fill this in a bit. What's the Civil War? resonance of the English Parliament argument?
3: Well, I think that there's two aspects to it without getting into too much um, detail. Well, the first is, is that the although it's often called the English Civil War, it's got an awful lot to do with the Union and the role that Scotland played uh, in putting pressure on the Crown, on Charles I. But also, in the end, it's a struggle between the Crown and a Parliament that did not want to pay taxes in order to fight the Crown's wars. And if you move to a situation in which you have an English Parliament, which is, I think, going to be much less willing, probably, to support the kind of interventionist foreign policies that generally the British political class has wanted to pursue then you're going to have an interesting dynamic and I think at the heart of why conservatives like Cameron and probably Osborne as well don't want to go down the road of accepting Scottish independence is actually nothing to do with the internal politics of the union it's something to do with their conception of Britain's place in the world and that diminishing british Britain's place in the world and and having an english parliament on top of that I think is a, a complication they're not they don't want to address
0: Politics is always a mix of this kind of sweeping historical perspective and very, very short-term games and decisions. It's a mix of principles, tactics, and strategy. The SNP have got to somehow balance principles, tactics, and strategy when they're faced with English folks for English laws questions. It may be that the issue is going to come to a head most immediately over the fox-hunting legislation, because the Tories have a semi-commitment to allow a free vote for the repeal of the ban on fox hunting, that's a law for England and Wales, but not Scotland. Uh, Scotland has a slightly more lax set of rules about fox hunting. What do the SNP, this is a slightly unfair question to ask, but I'm going to ask Fimba. what do the SNP do in that situation? On the one hand, they're committed to opposing everything that this Tory government puts forward. On the other hand, it would look very odd to lots of people for the SNP to join forces with Labour to prevent the repeal of the fox hunting legislation in England, when they themselves have Allowed looser regulation of fox hunting in
2: Scotland. So they're they're caught. Well, they may be caught. This may be one of those ones where you try to dodge about it by essentially abstaining and staying away. Although they're, they're, we should say this week the SNP are not just there, they are now occupying the Labour benches because they want people to know they are there. Absolutely. And so if you were playing the politics from the Conservative side, you want to put them on difficult votes immediately because you want they're saying they want to be the opposition. Well, then you've got to be the opposition and you've got to turn up. But on um, that kind of vote, which really gets them nowhere they would prefer probably just to step aside and just put their fingers in their ears and go, let's get on to something more interesting. Why don't we? But if they're forced into the position of being the opposition, I think they would actually say, on principle, we'll block the Tories. We said we were going to block the Tories. So
0: Chris, do you think that English votes for English laws is in the end going to be the question on which the SNP have got to step on one or other side of the divide? I mean, do they secretly want greater English devolution in order to more or less provide more momentum behind the breakup of the union or not, because they could take a, I don't know if it's a tactical or a strategic decision, basically just to cause trouble in Westminster. And part of the way they could cause trouble is simply to drive this agenda by making it look very hard how the Westminster Parliament could legislate for England.
4: My assumption has always been that the intention of the Scottish nationalists is to cause trouble at Westminster, the precedents going back into the late 19th century with the Irish nationalist uh, MPs. It looks to me as if getting everyone else really annoyed with you is probably a rational medium to long term strategy for getting what you want, for getting people to cut a deal with you so that you go away. During the election campaign, it always struck me as there were people on the left who were looking forward to a Labour-SNP deal, thinking that that would be the best for everyone. That always looked to me like quite a naive point of view. The SNP would have enjoyed uh, causing havoc, annoying everyone. Um, And I think that's what we're going to see. It's harder, though, with a majority Conservative government who can win their votes regardless of how the SNP votes a lot of the time. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen and quite what Nicola Sturgeon and David Cameron are saying to each other behind the scenes. They have been talking to one another. It may very well be that they're able to strike a deal that benefits their respective parties. We'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Thanks to Helen Finbar
0: and Chris. Now to my conversation with Richard Danbury. Before we discuss how inquisitorial journalists put politicians on the spot, a reminder of some of the memorable moments from the recent campaign. This was Ed Miliband being taunted about toughness by
5: Jeremy Paxman. Well, uh, let me tell you, right? Let me tell you. Okay. Come on. Let me tell you. Okay, in the the summer of 2013, this government proposed action in Syria, the bombing of Syria, right? Mm. I was called into a room by David Cameron and Nick Clegg, because President Obama had been on the phone, the leader of the free world, right? I, I listened to what they said, and over those days I made up my mind and we said no, right? Now, I, I think standing up to the leader of the free world uh, I think shows a certain toughness, I, I would, would proud say. of what's happened in Syria since? I'm not proud of it, no. It's a failure of the international community. But what I'm not going to do is repeat the mistakes of the 2003 Iraq war, which happened when, when Labour was in power, which is a rush to war... Uh, without knowing what your strategy is uh, and without being clear about what the consequences would be. I- I'm not a pacifist, so I did support action in Libya, and David Cameron uh, talked about ha- how I supported action against ISIS. But am I tough enough? H- tough enough? Hell yes, I'm tough enough.
0: And here he is being worked over by members of the public during BBC Question Time.
5: A ban on zero-hours contracts will prevent me from growing my small business. Isn't it time the Labour Party put business before gimmicks and soundbites?
1: Uh, and uh... And, and there
4: is evidence that more people like zero-hours contracts mm. than dislike them.
5: Chris, what's your business? It's tourism business. So when the sun shines, I've got business. If the sun doesn't shine, I don't. So uh, zero-hours contracts would be good for me. The sun always shines
1: in Yorkshire.
2: Yeah, always. <laughs> Whenever there's a, a cycle race, there is.
5: <laughs> well, let me tell you about our policy, Chris, and then maybe you come back and, and say how it, how it might affect
2: you. Yeah, so I've just got a really simple question. Yeah. Do you accept that when Labor was last in power, it overspent? No, I don't.
5: Uh, and I know you may not agree with that. Uh, but but, le- but let, me, let me just say very clearly... E- even with all the borrowing? Year n- on, year n- on, year n- on. No, I don't. Let me tell you. Because there are schools that have been rebuilt in our country. There are hospitals that were rebuilt. There were Sure Start centres that were... There were sure Start centres that were built, which would not have happened. And so, look, I don't agree with that. And, I, and let me just explain to you the way I see it. There was a global financial crisis which caused the deficit to rise. Now, look, President Obama isn't dealing with a high deficit because we built more schools and hospitals. He's dealing with a high deficit because there was that global financial crisis. So, spendi- But spending's got to fall. I say to this gentleman here, spending's got to fall. And that's why we will reduce spending.
4: All right, and you, say there. You talk about this global financial uh, crisis. Australia didn't suffer this. Canada didn't suffer this. Some of the other major countries didn't mm. suffer. This country suffered. Because Gordon Brown sold gold, just to prop up the um, social services. How can you stand there and say you didn't overspend and end up bankrupting this country? That is absolutely ludicrous. You're you're frankly just lying. Uh, I
5: I, I guess I'm not going to convince you, but... uh... Well, you're not (laughs) going to convince me, because
4: the facts speak for themselves. You stood there and said you didn't overspend If I get to the end of the week and I can't afford to buy a pint, I've overspent, it means I haven't got any money left. I spoke to Richard on a
0: rainy day, so once again you might hear the pitter-patter of raindrops on my office window. And I started by asking him what he and his fellow producers were trying to achieve as they prepared the Paxman interviews.
1: What were they actually after? The short answer is you're trying to ask the questions which a reasonably informed member of the public would want asked. And you're trying to do it in such a way that you get an answer which is informative, and that's the trick, and that's why I think that interrogative interviews are quite useful. The testament of whether it's successful is whether you think you've pierced through and got that sort of answer, and then you select the material, design the questions, and instruct, and brief, and research... Uh, trying to achieve that end. Because most
0: members of the public, I'll call myself a member of the public in this context, because I am, look at them and think what you're trying to do is pierce the armour in a gotcha sense. So less of a kind of to get the informed answer, and more of the to catch them out, the catch them out moment. And of course, people associate Paxman particularly with that, but he's not He's not alone. He may not be, even be the worst. But that sense that it's a gotcha kind of politics, it's a game, it's who blinks first. That's what it feels like. Are you deliberately trying to work against that or are you working with, with that? Should we assume that that is part of it?
1: In some senses, you can characterise it a game, but then you can characterise very many very, very serious things as a game. I mean, game theory itself is a very serious game. I mean, in the sense that, is it something trivial and is it just a, a, a parlour game with words? And absolutely not. But there are different strands to which it's worth unpacking. And one is the, uh, the, the nature of political communication and media communication in a society like ours. Not only do you need to pierce through the armour of the, the person giving the interview, but you also need to pierce through the attention of the people who are listening at home. Uh, one of the core things about journalism is it's about communication. It's not about broadcasting. Um, and to come out with a piece of information which is pure and perfect uh, and balanced and even, but no one to pay a blind bit of attention to it, is ultimately futile. And I speak is a BBC producer who once made a programme which recorded zero viewing figures. So it's absolutely pointless to make a piece of broadcasting if one's going to watch, however good and fair it is. So you need to pierce through. And there are very different techniques in different media for doing that. And in television, and radio to less extent, you are aware of the theatricality of it. Um, television particularly, so I've produced reporters who have no concept of the fact that their face is a way of helping the audience understand things. They don't get the theatre, they look like a pudding, and all the uh, shots of them look like a pudding, and it puts you off, and therefore the message is diluted.
0: So no one would accuse Jeremy Paxman of being one of your presenters who doesn't get the theatricality of it, and his face is magnificent in many ways. Yes. And it was during those interviews. After the event... Did you feel that they had achieved their goal? They had some very theatrical moments, including the famous hell yeah moment. And these things always look different in retrospect. At the time, it looked like one thing after the election result. It looks like something slightly different. Did you feel after the event that you had pierced through that you'd captured something about either of the two main party leaders that that the public wouldn't have got before the interview started?
1: Speaking personally, I always come out of these interviews feeling we've failed, but that's because I'm a pessimist by nature. Um, And they also sound different and react different when you're sitting in the gallery watching from how people at home view it. And also the key variable, which is very curious, is the instant polls, which kind of dictate how they're perceived. So a very interesting one was the... Uh, the one last year, the Farage-Clegg interview, which I did for the BBC. That was a debate, not an interview. That was a debate. So yeah. yes, and on that, I thought Clegg did extremely well. But the instant response thing said he did. Uh, much worse than Farage, and so expectations were changed. You know, my subjective view of how I felt in the debate is, is not necessarily the most important variable. The most important variable are how it's perceived by others afterwards.
0: Another encounter which generated a lot of headlines and again, shaped the narrative of the election, was the BBC Question Time, where we had the three party leaders. And in particular the confrontation between Ed Miliband and an audience which included people who asked him questions that he clearly hadn't really been asked before, including the one that really stood out for me, was the businessman who was in favour of zero hour contracts and thought that they were great. And he did slightly have the look of a man who'd never heard anyone say that. And that was very different. It had a different feel. It's very hard to imagine mainstream media interviewer putting him on the spot in that way. Do you feel that there are some things that Paxman can't get to that you can get from that kind of encounter?
1: No, I don't, actually. I mean, it's very interesting you say that. I thought you were going to highlight a different question, which is one which we feel, I feel, we ought to have asked but didn't, which is asking Labour, did you spend too much, which seems to have been the, the question of the, uh, you know, the interrogative question of the moment. I've well, got to...
0: But I think that question, he has been asked that question a lot. That, he can't have been surprised by that question. David Cameron's been holding that letter from Liam Byrne yes. for years saying, but we run ca- out of money. It was the, so I felt that there were some things that you get from the public. And it was partly kind of the guy saying, I'm a small businessman, I can tell you things that you won't hear from other people that you don't get from the mainstream interviewers. Well,
1: I mean, just a couple of things. I mean, firstly, uh, in terms of the question asked, I mean, I do think that perhaps it's the context, perhaps it's the framing, whatever it is, it was a miss we didn't ask. In terms of, uh, uh, is there a particular sort of question uh, that Paxman can't ask, or more generally, interrogative question, Andrew Neil or, or, or Humphreys? Or anyone else can ask I don't think so we pay a lot of attention at least I do when I'm thinking about these things of whether attack from the right or the left and you don't have a particular view you the route of travel and the angle of attack comes from what you're seeking to get out of it rather than a pre-existing political narrative which you have in your head what I think is important is the context um, and I've thought quite a bit about professional interrogative journalism and lay interrogative journalism, the benefits and the downsides. And if you look at it historically, there's some wonderful examples of lay interrogative journalism doing very well. The famous example is questioning Margaret Thatcher about the Belgrano, when she said it was heading in one direction, that was incorrect, and it was heading in another. There are times when they can ask questions and get an answer which professionals can't. It may be because the professionals have their guards down. It may be because they're more limited in their potential responses to a member of the public than they are to a to a professional journalist. So in a member of the public, they have to remember the name. They have to look them in their eye. They can't be aggressive, too aggressive back. There are all these things which they can do and do do with professional journalists. So I guess it's probably more context rather than the nature of the question, which is the difference. One of the striking things about the question time
0: encounter with the 200 or so members of the audience is that each of the half-hour exchanges was kind of unbalanced in the sense that it was genuinely hostile all the way through. There's a feeling, even with Paxman, that after a sustained burst of hostility, he has to back off a bit and move on to something else. Do you feel that you're constrained at all by the requirement not to feel like you are just coming at these politicians from a particular direction all the way through the interview?
1: Yes, I do. But I see the the benefits of being constrained. And does that compare with the members of the public? Yes. The Question Time programme is an interesting comparison with the 2010 election. There's an ability in the format for the the head of steam to build up. If you look back at the 2010 uh, questions for the party leader programme, there was no possibility of clapping there was no possibility of there was a very limited amount of subsidiary questions that could be asked what 's the curious alchemy of a, of a question time debate and I think it is this capacity for the atmosphere in the in the room itself to build up and exert pressure and you compare that with a, a comparable sort of debate format where that was deliberately withheld and you see that there it was much more controlled, and that uncontrollable element did not manifest itself. It was more sterile.
0: Did you think we learned anything from a seven-person debate that we couldn't get out via other formats?
1: Yeah, Yes, you did. I mean, there's always a trade-off, I've always thought, between the more people, potential interviewees and the uh the amount you can learn in traditional means from them because if they've all got something to say and if there's a choreographed amount the sort of things they have to say then you're going to get less information out at least that was my starting position but what you do get i think from that seven person debate you do get the kind of you get the shifting sands of their relationship with each other um which is manifest particularly on
6: television when you can see it That's Stamps.com. Code program. Happening,
0: And I think also with the seven person debate, this is with hindsight, but I think it was also thought at the time, it really did help Nicola Sturgeon, because she stood out as someone who seemed in control. It's quite a difficult format to control. And even I think David Cameron wasn't entirely comfortable. She seemed comfortable, though there were six other people on the stage with dominating the parts of the conversation where she was able to speak. And I do think that really did make a difference in conveying her and her stature in a way, which many people, including people in England who knew almost nothing about her, hadn't got before then.
1: I think that's right. And again, you you think back to 2010 and Clegg Mania and what happened there. That leads you to other thoughts. When they first suggested uh, prime ministerial debates in this country, Alec Douglas Hume came out with a pithy phrase that the uh, he was against it because the best actor would win supported by the best showman implicitly he was saying there is a very weak correlation between those sorts of skills and being able to run a country and therefore you'd get the wrong sort of people running the country and that you know it's a greater problem about democracy in general but leaving that aside I think that's what you it's absolutely right Nicholas Sturgeon and, and and Clegg coming to the fore in these debates is something that happens but at least the subsidiary question is it good that it happens I'm not going to leave it. I don't know what the answer to that question is you'd know better than me what the answer to that question. well
0: we have one test with Cleggmania which is we know what happened to Cleggmania and then we know what happened after five years of Clegg in government which would lead people I suspect in future to be somewhat more cautious about thinking that mania coming out of these debates is going to be a recipe for long-term success. and We'll see with thing. Nicola Sturgeon in five years' time people may be thinking as they have often said of this election be careful what you wish for
1: I think that's right I think the, the, the strongest you can definitely say is there's no necessary correlation between wowing the audience in one of these debates and coming out on top and being able to run a country well there may be I don't know but there's no necessary correlation
0: so one thing that was said about this election in the run-up was that and it's been said about various elections over the past 10-15 years this was going to be the Facebook election the Twitter election the social media election and particular this time when we said it a bit on this podcast, the influence of the press seemed to have been diminished. Murdoch is not the figure that he was. And yet post the result, it doesn't look like that at all. As various people have said, maybe it wasn't the sun what won it, but it definitely wasn't Twitter what won it. Um, Old media seems to have done pretty well, television and newspapers, in shaping the agenda, and in having the biggest impact on how people have thought about the politicians. Is that your feeling of it from the other side of the fence, that old media is still hanging in there, punching its weight?
1: If you ask me as an old journalist or an old media journalist, uh, of course, I'm going to be tempted to say yes. But you know better than me that the empirical research on media effect is really um, unclear. Uh, and for every time that there's, you know, the Sun what won it, that famous thing, there was mm. polling afterwards indicating that voters paid not a blind bit of attention to what the Sun's editorial policy was. And
0: some people voted Labour because they thought the Sun had told them to vote Labour, despite having a picture of Kinnock and a light bulb on the front.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very dangerous to, to draw conclusions about media effect and media effect politically and media effect on elections um you 've got to you 've got to look through the glass darkly you 've got to look at the media 's portrayal of what the media effect is, and of course that 's self serving uh, but leaving that aside, which I think is a valid point um, and but we all we all are in that glass darkly, leaving that aside and also comparing with the two thousand and ten election, they said that was going to be the new media election, and it wasn 't the format an old format which was designed I think in one thousand nine hundred and fifty six for the American presidential debate between Kennedy and Nixon. An old format was the one which swung it all the political energy at the beginning was spent thinking about these old formats. So in the end, it will happen, I guess, that uh, you know, old forms of journalism will lose their clout. But at the moment, they don't, um, for reasons, I guess, of reputation, legacy, belief, inertia. But they're still there.
0: And as you say, the evidence about newspapers influencing how people vote is not just mixed. I think there is a consensus that it's very, very small, what Murdoch was doing this time was not trying to tell people how to vote, but trying to make sure he was on the right side of the people who were likely to win. So he went for Sturgeon. There's no explanation for it otherwise, for a single newspaper well, to support Sturgeon in Scotland.
1: There is a motivation, and that's to do with commerce rather than politics. Right, but, so, the, but
0: commerce, which is he wants to be on the winning side. He doesn't think he can create the winning side. He just wants to be there when it
1: happens. The, you know, the, the, the imperative of commerce and politics are distinct rivers which run in the same bed. Sometimes, you know, they're aligned and sometimes they diverge. And I think on this one, he you know, he wants obviously to be closer to the party to wield influence so that he can say he can pull in favours. But on the other hand, he wants to keep his... His paper selling—it's the old thing about. It's the old thing about journalism: is it's uh, you, you've got to be aware of what you want the audience to think, and also you've got to be aware of what the audience wants you to say. It's a reciprocal thing, and I think um, with Murdoch, those combined motivations are patent in his support for Sturgeon in Scotland. A politician, especially ones who run as a democracy, a, a central part of their job is communicating again and communicating to a public and bringing people along with them, particularly those who don't follow them uh, and being able to sell the product.
0: And in our campaign, I suspect it's the case that Natalie Bennett, I mean, the the green vote probably wasn't going to vary that much, but she did her party no favours. No one thought of her as a potential prime minister, but there was a certain amount of struggling under the spotlight, which does put people off. I mean, I think there's no question that you can be put off by a performance. You're more likely to be put off voting for someone by what you see in a debate than confirmed in a view that you didn't have before about who you want to vote for.
1: I have a suspicion that her
0: brain freeze probably endeared her. It was both endearing, but I also listened to it and it was agony. In the same way, I defy anyone to watch the full minute of Rick Perry forgetting to be able to name three government departments and not start to feel very uncomfortable 30 seconds in. The same with Natalie Bennett, but it was hard not to feel for her. But actually, I think during the seven-person debate she really did look a little bit like someone who was out of her depth. And that did not help. And I think the Green Party actually missed a trick because that was their one moment in the spotlight every five years. I I genuinely think that the Green Party in hindsight should have chosen someone else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're they opening up to a different question here about, you know, whether activists choose the correct person to be attractive to the populace in general. They're and we'll gen- find that out with the Labour Party. Well, exactly where we're heading towards. They generally don't, do they? They p- choose people who appeal to them rather than people to the country. It's like, and what they don't get, it's like buying a birthday present. You don't buy a birthday. You don't buy the thing you want. You buy the thing which other people want, and that's what activists should do when they're electing uh, uh, people to run their their parties.
0: One last question. You worked for a long time um, as a journalist and as a producer uh you've worked for the BBC as well as other news organisations One thing that no one was expecting was that the Conservatives would get a majority. And now that they have, the question of what will happen to the BBC has risen up the agenda in that coalition provided some insulation for the BBC. They're now, once again, fully exposed to the wrath, if that's what it is, of the Conservative Party, which also has now appointed as the relevant minister someone, John Whittingdale, with a track record, if not of hostility, of scepticism about the BBC and its licence fee. Are you worried for the future of the BBC? Do you think that we are about to embark on a new period of straight confrontation between the public broadcaster and the elected government?
1: Am I worried? Well, one's always worried about the BBC for a number of reasons. I think W1A is an acute observational documentary. Uh, and it's far too close to comfort. Uh, what do I think is going to happen in the future? I don't know. Uh, and nor am I think, uh, i have I got a particularly informed opinion. But it does highlight some of the central things which have been there since the beginning of the BBC. And it's always been, it's always had this tension, it pivots between one and the other, uh, between uh, supplying material, which is uh, the market won't provide, the market failure Um, uh, model of public service broadcasting and the universal model of public service broadcasting providing something for everyone everywhere Uh, you know coal miners in sunderland farmers down in the northeast or or rich bankers in london everyone's going to watch and i think what you're going to see crystallized is that debate about what the bbc's for and i think that's the core of any debate particularly when you're coming from the right Um, and questions of funding arise that so you're going to see those issues ventilated again and again.
0: Do you think that the BBC has a persuasive argument for a government of the right about market failure and providing services that the market won't provide? Because that's the problem in that they are dealing with a government that doesn't on the whole, like to hear arguments about market failure. So there's there's a gulf to be bridged
1: there. If you look at a crack at you know, Thatcher and the Peacock report for the future of the BBC, you see that Margaret Thatcher unleashed the right-wing economist to try and take the BBC from the right, and even the right-wing economist failed because you're dealing with something which is actually quite complicated and the market, it's quite well established in media economics that the market doesn't necessarily provide information which society considers to be useful and valuable, nor is it necessarily, does it provide enough um, money for people who want to do this because you provide it to one set of people and then it just gets disseminated on endlessly. You can't actually create money from each bit of value that's created from it. you know. And to some extent you hear with a heavy heart that we're going back over them again and they're not going to be dealt with uh, because of the merits of the argument, they're going to be dealt with because of the politics behind the argument.
0: Many thanks to Richard Danbury. One of the most striking outcomes of this election is how many things we were told were finished have turned out to have more life in them than we thought. Two-party politics, majority governments and the old media are all still very much with us. We even have familiar battles looming, as we just heard, between the BBC and a majority Conservative government. We were promised that this election heralded a brave new world in which we would be feeling in the dark for new ways of doing politics. We may even have encouraged that impression on this podcast. But it all looks pretty familiar for now. This is a little bit reassuring and more than just a little bit depressing. Now back to our news panel. This past week has already seen dramatic moves in the Labour leadership race, even though we are still four months out from knowing the result. One of the early favourites, Chuka Umana, has pulled out saying he was not prepared for the excessive scrutiny that being a leadership contender would bring. Many people interpreted this to mean that the tabloids had something on him, though nothing much has been forthcoming. Chris, is this
4: another sign of the continuing hold of the old media, or was he talking about something else? I think it's probably right that Umana was under a degree of press scrutiny that he hasn't endured before in his life. There were stories of the press door stopping his house, of uh, family members being contacted, the references and news stories I think to 102 year old grandmothers or something like that um, that level of scrutiny must be very wearing and borderline impossible to deal with. Though could have been
0: anticipated presumably. Uh, I mean, it's, he's not, it's not like he's coming to this world as a complete neophyte. He
4: has been in it. No, that's right and uh, insofar as there have been stories about him uh, from them I've learned a new word jetrosexual. but the stories... You can't just move on. Tell us what a heterosexual is. Well, well, the stories seem to be uh, new versions of stories that have been in the papers before, that Umana is a wealthy man who belongs to elite social networks that do things on the internet, and uh, for people with uh, lots of disposable income, young people who like enjoying themselves. And there have been stories in the past where journalists have been able to access the uh, discussion transcripts or whatever that are going on on these websites. And what appeared in the Sunday papers uh, was new versions of that kind of thing, nothing especially dramatic. And that's partly why I think another plausible story about what Mono is up to is making a decision that this is too early for him. He's in his mid-30s. Lots of people are of the view that Labour will probably lose the 2020 election already. And it may very well be that the the leader they're selecting now is the person who has to do long-term party rebuilding for the next leader, with luck, to scoop the big prize. The last thing Omana wants to be is another Ed Miliband whose political career is destroyed by his early 40s.
0: And I think actually the analogy would probably be William Hague rather than Ed Miliband, not least because they're the same age. Mm -hmm. William Hague had a decent career after his pretty disastrous period of leadership. But I think in retrospect, probably he would have preferred not to have had those four years because he might now be in a different position. But there is something a bit odd about these young ambitious politicians planning five, ten years ahead in a game which is Politics in which anything could happen. I mean, my I'm not I'm not a politician, so I don't know. But my instinct would always be that you shouldn't think that you can strategize a ten year cycle in which you end up leader, and therefore forego an opportunity to become leader now. Am I being? Um, is that the kind of thing that politician would say? Only a non politician would say. I just think that if you get the chance. You should take it, and this is man 's chance.
2: I, it's not I, like the
0: scrutiny's going away. I
2: disagree that it's his chance. I think that he is one of the contenders. Obviously, no oh, longer was, yes. exactly, no longer standing. But it was by no means uh, a slam dunk that he was going to be the choice. He faced a lot of obstacles in terms of his ba- in terms of how he's characterized by both the media, how he's characterized by parts of the party, whether or not he would actually be able to bring enough of the party together, both within. Uh, the Parliamentary Labour Party and then across the unions and across the Labour Party more generally. So I, I think there may be truth in all of what Chris has said in both the sense that there may be some dirt that he doesn't want flung around, that he does feel that it's too early. He's looked into it and gone, actually, this is going to kill me too early. And I think he forgive me, I think that these kinds of political operators do think 5, 10 and 20 years ahead. They think the big... Only George Osborne does that. (laughs) I disagree. I I know, I'm uh, joking. (laughs) I think that if you were that kind of person who wants to take those kinds of positions, you think in both the very short term and the very long term, you've got to put both together. Uh, And one thing I'd just
4: add to what Finbar has said is that One of the things we have to recognise is the talent pool in the parliamentary Labour Party is extremely thin at the moment. So one might think that the danger of thinking in the medium to long term is you'll be overtaken by lots of other people or you'll be crowded out by other ambitious politicians. There are very, very few heavyweights on the Labour benches now, and it's plausible to think that it's not crazy for Amanna to think that he'll be
2: at the top table, he'll be one of the big guns in Labour in five, six, seven, eight years' time. I think it's true. But I think the one person who's come into the equation who's really interesting, and we'll see how it plays out over the next five years, is Keir Starmer. And all of the first impressions are of somebody who is already statesmanlike, who has extensive experience, isn't that type of career politician, and could be a real force. But the thing about Starmer, unlike even Omana, is he has not been subjected to the scrutiny yet.
0: He's completely untested by that. I don't want to harp on too much on this old media and new media thing that I was talking to Richard Danbury about earlier. But one striking thing about the Umana story is that in some senses, he was the new media candidate. He was young. He was sexy. He's a jetrosexual, whatever that means. So it feels like he's kind of socially networked. But immediately when he announced he was pulling out, the assumption was this was a story about the tabloids and the tabloids had something on him. Helen, is it reasonable to think that actually one of the things that has come out of this election is the idea that newspapers, and particularly those newspapers, do still really have a hold, at least on the imaginations and the fears of national politicians?
3: I think in one sense it doesn't really matter whether it's the new media or the old media. If politicians have got something to hide, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that Imada does have something to hide, they're going to get found out by one form of media or, or the other. That is just the nature of the age of scrutiny and the expectations that we now have of of um, democratic politicians. I, I wouldn't see it as an old media new media story. The crux of the problem for New Labour in a way, or sorry, for the Labour Party, and it goes back to Chris's point, is really the talent pool and that the bottom line fact here is that That the upper echelons of New Labour, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair destroyed their own political children. And now they are left with the legacy of that, in that you will have a set of the politicians who are effectively picked by Brown and Blair to be the successors for the people who are going to fight for the succession, whose careers are over by their mid-40s. Now, on one side...
0: So just to be clear, so as it were, in Brown and Blair's eyes, by the time we reach this point, it should be David Miliband versus Ed Balls fighting for the leadership of the Labour Party, and they are both finished.
3: Absolutely. For what, now, anyway. What should have happened in the in, in that scenario was that Brown should have held his election earlier, probably uh, won it. He should now be reaching the end of his term. Then there could be a Brownite versus Blairite fight between David Miliband and Ed Balls. Both of them would be in their late 40s. One of them would win. Ideally, the other would have still be willing to serve um, in the cabinet Instead, what you're left with is only Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham of that coterie of spads that were created to be the successing political class, neither of whom are as able as the two who've at the top, whose careers have been destroyed. And so, if you're a man at one front, you're going to have to say, well, if that kind of dynamic's got staying power in some sense, then maybe you're not too young in your 30s because it can all end very quickly. On the other hand, I do think there's something very specific to the approach that Blair and Brown took to their succession that means that Labour destroyed its political children in the way in which it
0: did. Another old institution that is playing a part in this leadership election that, again, we're sometimes told is on the wane, but still seems to have a lot of influence, is the union movement, and particularly Unite, and specifically in the person of Len McCluskey, who's been all over the airwaves. There was a big falling out this week between Jim Murphy and Scotland and Unite. I think Jim Murphy said something like he wouldn't trust Len McCluskey to pick a winner from a shortlist of one. Um, The rumour is, I don't know if it's a rumour or if it's simply a fact, that Unite are trying to engineer it so that Andy Burnham becomes the leader of the Labour Party. Helen, is that something that the Labour Party should be seriously concerned about? That they may end up with someone who is again labelled as the union's choice?
3: I think if that's the way that this played out, then absolutely that they should, because it's uh, clearly a a label that hurt Ed Miliband very badly, particularly in the early Time the early days of his um, leadership. It's obviously though, going to be much more difficult for Len McCloskey and Unite to determine the outcome of this Labour leadership election than the last leadership election because of the fact that the the rules have changed and that the unions no longer have 33% of the vote and they won't be sending out ballot papers with Ed Miliband's picture on the front in one sense, what we've got is a, is a new kind of Labour leadership election. But at the same time, if you look at what's going on within the parliamentary party, then clearly about half the Labour MPs have some pretty strong connection, including financial connection, to Unite. It's unlikely, I think, that Labour wants to end up with a, a leader who is going to start with as unpopular amongst their own MPs, as Ed Miliband was, given Burnham's relationship with, or parent relationship, I should say, um, with Unite, given that it's in Labour's interest to have a a leader who's got backing within the parliamentary party, given that the union will be at Unite and other unions will be able to sign up affiliate members, you can still see ways in which Unite is going to have a significant influence over the outcome of the election, though the dynamic is very different than it was last time.
0: And Chris, the, the threshold, which is that to stand, you need to have 35 MPs sign up for you. It doesn't sound like a lot, but of course there aren't that many Labour MPs left at the moment. No. Never- a few, but not so many that it's easy to get 35. I think we're going to discover today whether Tristram Hunt, who I mentioned earlier, is standing or not. And I think it slightly depends on whether he thinks he can get those 35. As you say, the talent pool is not huge. But whatever you think of Tristram Hunt, some of the talent seems to be being squeezed out by
4: the process. Yes. And I think one of the things we're seeing at the moment, and this is partly the story about what Unite is doing, and it's partly the story about the way that both Cooper and Burnham have been making business friendly noises they've been saying things that the more Blair-eyed MPs in the party want to hear, this looks to me like a strategy where Cooper and Burnham are trying to hoover up as much support as they can before the candidates uh, who are connected with the Progress Network or the old Blair Networks uh, can sort their stuff out. And it would be quite remarkable, in a way, if you had a leadership election in the party without a candidate standing for the old Blair agenda. I think one of Liz Kendall or Tristram Hunt uh, is likely to make the uh, final cut, is likely to get the 35 nominations. Um, But it's entirely possible at the moment that we will just see a Burnham-Cooper slugfest, uh, which would be a curious election uh, because it wouldn't be one that would obviously – polarise the party around its
0: traditional fault lines. And Finbar, just to go back to where we started, which is the question of England and devolution, does the Labour Party need to think of the Scottish Labour Party as a separate entity in that the Scottish Labour Party will itself need a new leader, but does it need to establish a separate identity for itself? Because A lot of people have said that this new Labour leader faces an impossible task because they have to both reach out to Scotland and to Middle England, and they have to fight off UKIP in the north, the northern powerhouse. And that is indeed impossible. So should those tasks be divided up, should there be a
2: division of Labour here, and you get essentially a separate party in Scotland. I'm really torn, to be honest, because I think the only way they can effectively fight in Scotland is to have a separated Labour Party. But I think that the signal that gives is to say that they're actually giving up on the union in some ways. And they're saying that, they're, that the end of the union is inevitable and that we're going to see that fragmentation. So in some ways, I think they're actually caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, for me, The problem for the Labour Party goes right down to its basic core. There's been a lot of talk from Yvette Cooper and from Andy Burnham on values and a lot of conversations about the party, the party, the party. It really worries me, actually, when I hear a lot of the conversation, because they seem to be very internally focused, very much about, oh, us, the poor party, forgetting that actually the point of all of this is what actually happens to people and what's actually happening in the economy. So... I think they need to really quickly reevaluate how they're looking at rebuilding the party, how they look at rebuilding the narrative about what they stand for. Because it's not just about them, it is actually about what happens to the people post the election.
0: Thanks as always to Helen Finbar and Chris, to our special guest Richard Danbury, and to our production team of Hannah Critchlow, Frances Durnley, and Lizzie Presser. Next week will be the last edition in this season of election. I'll be joined by Helen, Finbar and Chris to look back at what we've learned about politics over the past 16 weeks and to look ahead to what we'll be talking about next year when election returns to cover the US presidential primaries and much else besides. I'll also be talking to one of Britain's leading lawyers, Lord Anthony Grabener QC, about forthcoming battles over the Human Rights Act. Can the Tories really repeal it? And what would that mean? Do please join us again one more time. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge University Podcast Election.